Welcome to Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who helped found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson. Today, I plan to share a conversation that I had in 2008 with a longtime contributor to the marine mammal community, Dr. Robert Hoffman. Bob, as he likes to be called, is one of the world's leading authorities on Antarctic pinnipeds. Also, in the early 1970s, he became scientific program director for the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission where he played a major role in assessing threats and implementing the recovery and conservation efforts of the Florida manatees, California sea otters, Hawaiian monk seals, and other endangered and threatened marine mammal species. Dr. Hoffman's path into the marine mammal field, like many of his peers, was a circuitous one. He contributed much to the field of marine mammal science during his career, So let's listen to some of his stories and thoughts in his own words, instead of me telling you about them. For me, getting involved in marine mammals was actually an accident. I had been teaching in high school and in 1967 got a National Science Foundation academic year grant to go to the University of Minnesota and uh, after the first year there, the University of Minnesota has a biological field station at the headwaters of the Mississippi River at Itasca State Park. And I thought I'd regret it all my, all my life if I didn't go up there and uh, spend a summer at the field station. So I did with my family, two small children, and we were living in a little tent trailer and uh, one night over a campfire, uh, talking with other people there, uh, was a, a guy by the name of Dave Klein, who you may know, uh, said to me that he was just finishing up a master's degree, and he, he said uh, he'd been hired as part of a, uh, a group to go study Antarctic seals. And I had been in the Navy uh, during the International Geophysical Year in 57 and 58 and had volunteered to go to the Antarctic. But I was a sonarman and they said, what do we need a sonarman for? We really need uh, 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 you know, uh, people who can do hands-on work. So when I heard about the Antarctic, I said, gee, I'd love to do that. And he, he told me, he said, well, I think they have a space for one graduate student. So the next morning I called up uh, uh, the guy who was, uh, well, two people who had just received the National Science Foundation grant. One was Al Erickson, and that's who I called. The other one was Don Seneff. He'll come up again in a minute. And so I called Dr. Erickson up and said, well, uh, Dave told me last night that you might have uh, room for a a graduate student and now this was of course in 19 the summer of 1968 
the Vietnam War was uh, well on its way. And he said, well, come down and talk to me. So I jumped in the car and I drove 200 miles down to the, uh, the St. Paul campus where he was. We talked for about a half an hour and when he'd found out I'd been in the Navy, he was an old Marine. Uh, he said, well, I've already offered the job to somebody else, but I'll find something else for him to do. So uh, that's how I got involved in, in the Antarctic and Antarctic SEALs. Uh, that's what I did my PhD research on. And when I finished that, uh, the uh, Dr. Erickson's colleague, uh, Don Seneff, actually was on the first committee of scientific advisors for the Marine Mammal Commission and later became a commissioner. And they were looking for somebody uh, here at the commission. So uh, Don told John Twist, who was the executive director, he came out and interviewed me. And as they say, the rest is history. I was part of a group from the University of Minnesota. Uh, and it was interesting how they, uh, as I indicated earlier, uh, Al Erickson and Don Seneff had received uh, a National Science Foundation grant to do uh, seal research in the Antarctic. Uh, Al had been a, uh, or was a bear biologist with polar bears experience in the Arctic. Uh, Don had done some work in Alaska with salmon and with stellar sea lions. And uh, because of that, they were contacted uh, by uh, Giorgiano, Dr. Yano, who at that time was the biology program manager for what was the Office of Antarctic Research. So that's how they got involved. And uh, they eventually, uh, Don and Dave Klein, who I mentioned, uh, the initial phase of this was on an, on an icebreaker in the Weddell Sea. And uh, when they got back, Don said, I like nothing about this icebreaker work. He says, I'll do the work uh, over at McMurdo working with the land-based uh, Weddell seal colonies. So when I got involved, I went with both of them. So uh, in, depending upon the year, October, November, early December, I would go with Don Seneff to McMurdo and work with the Weddell seal breeding colonies. Uh, and then uh, later in the year, oftentimes in late, late December, but oftentimes in December, January, February, I would go on the icebreakers with, uh, with Al Erickson. I think over the court, I made something like 10 trips to the Antarctic. And we looked at all of the Antarctic seals, uh, crab eater seals, leopard seals, Weddell seals, uh, Ross seals, and even the southern elephant seal. Uh, and what, what I was doing, and we were looking at the, the whole issue of population dynamics. Uh, it's mostly what I was doing was uh, taking blood samples and doing uh, chromosome studies, which is, uh, by today's standards, is absolutely archaic. Uh, 
I don't know as anybody does chromosome studies anymore because now you can look at DNA uh, and it's so much more informative. And then over in the Weddell Sea uh, at McMurdo, uh, Don was doing work with uh, radio tracking and some of the earliest stuff uh, with, uh, with acoustics. And what we developed, uh, or they developed, was uh, a tag to put on the male seals and then we would set up a series of, of hydrophones where we could actually track them two-dimensionally underwater. So it was the, the, the first time anybody saw underwater territories maintained by uh, the Weddell seal males. Uh, and a lot of the things that Don and, and, and then Jeanette got involved in that program and Doug DeMaster and actually that program is continuing even now uh, largely with uh, NSF support. I've maintained connections with some of the people like Don Seneff and uh, I've maintained involvement in the Antarctic largely because of that early work. In uh, oh let's see 1978 or 1979 when a decision was made uh, to try to negotiate a regime to govern fisheries in the Antarctic. Uh, it's John Twiss uh, was going to interagency meetings uh, developing U.S. positions for those negotiations and there had been at, at that time there were 13 what are called consultative parties uh, to the Antarctic Treaty. The first 12 uh, were the countries who had maintained major programs during the international geophysical year in 57 and 58 and then the 13th uh, was Poland uh, who had uh, come aboard later. And uh, when a decision was made to try to negotiate under the auspices of the Antarctic Treaty uh, a regime to govern fishery development in the Antarctic. Uh, and I, maybe I'll divert a little bit and, and explain uh, some of that. It's in the late 50s and early 60s, both the Soviet Union and Japan had begun exploratory fishing in the Antarctic. And the species of particular interest uh, was Antarctic krill, Euphasia superb, superba. And that, of course, was the principal food of, of several species of whales, several species of seals, penguins, flying birds, uh, and there was substantial concern that if that fishery took off, it would affect the entire system. Uh, and that in part, that concern led to the, the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, which had been established uh, leading up to the International Geophysical Year. It was SCAR uh, that actually planned uh, and carried out the research in the Antarctic. 
And that research was successful, and it led uh, the U.S. Uh, in 1958 to say basically, could we extend uh, the cooperation that had occurred during the international geophysical year uh, to apply to everything in the Antarctic? And President Eisenhower uh, invited representatives of the, the 12 countries that had carried out research in the Antarctic uh, to come here, and most of the discussions ended up uh, uh, between the, uh, the consulates uh, here in Washington, D.C. At the end of the day, uh, they agreed, and in 1959, the Antarctic Treaty was signed. It entered into force in either I think 1961, but this year will be the 50th anniversary. 2009 will be the 50th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty. And several things were, were particularly import, important about the Antarctic Treaty. There were seven countries who had made claims uh, to parts of Antarctica uh, prior to the treaty, uh, including three countries, the United Kingdom, Argentina and Chile, who all claimed had overlapping claims in the peninsula area. But one of the key elements of the Antarctic Treaty, it, uh, it basically says, uh, notwithstanding the claims issue, while this treaty is in effect, we'll just freeze the claims. Uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union didn't recognize the claims, but both of them maintained a basis for claim. Uh, uh, and I won't go in, in, into all of that right now. Uh, the other part, it, uh, or another part of the treaty, it says uh, the Antarctic shall be available to anyone uh, for scientific research. It's in the, in the interest of all mankind. It's, I think that's probably the, the, the first reflection of that language, the interest of all mankind. Uh, to maintain uh, the Antarctic as uh, a place for, for people, peaceful purposes. And the act prohibited, or the treaty prohibited, any kind of military activities, uh, uh, nuclear testing, or disposal of nuclear waste. Uh, so in that sense, it, it, it was very, very unique. And one thing that most people don't recognize, even those who know about the Antarctic Treaty, it was largely an arms control agreement. It's the first really effective arms control agreement, which among other things, it provides that uh, all stations in Antarctica, all uh, ships in points of uh, unloading or loading, in the same way with aircraft, uh, is open for inspection by uh, any consultative party at any time. So it's, there's 100% uh, availability and freedom uh, for inspection. Uh, and uh, an interesting thing in that regard, uh, even during the Falkland Islands War, when, uh, when the UK and Argentina were shooting at each other in the Falklands, uh, delegations from both countries uh, were sitting in New Zealand uh, 
and we're talking about uh, the negotiation of a regime to govern mineral resource activities in the Antarctic. Well, uh, that's a long story uh, getting us back to Antarctic krill. In, uh, it became clear that that fishery might develop and there was speculation that because of the, the over-harvesting of whales, there was a, a surplus of krill that, that could be harvested. And the speculation at that time was that maybe as, as much as 70 million metric tons, actually I think it was 72, uh, and that was e of, of Antarctic krill could be taken every year and that was about equivalent to the total fishery catch in the world. Uh, fish, shellfish, everything. So clearly there was great concern. And uh, the National Science Foundation had provided money to SCAR uh, to do a, a basically an international workshop which was held I think in 1976 up in Woods Hole and developed what was called the, the Biomass Program. Biomass stands for Biological Investigation of Antarctic Systems and Stocks. And about the same time then uh, the Antarctic Treaty Parties uh, recognized the need to develop some kind of regime to govern fisheries in the Antarctic. And that b takes us back to where I was saying where the Marine Mammal Commission got involved. Uh, John Twist was, uh, was going to interagency meetings uh, to develop the U.S. negotiating positions uh, for that regime. And I think five or six other countries had already tabled uh, draft regimes and all of them were traditional maximum sustainable yield MSY fishery agreements. And as you probably are well aware, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act uh, really was the first legislative manifestation of two concepts. One is the ecosystem approach uh, uh, to uh, marine fisheries. Uh, or marine conservation, and the other one is the optimum sustainable population concept. Twists at those interagency meetings, now this is secondhand from, from him, uh, said uh, we shouldn't have a, a traditional MSY fishery agreement. What we really need is uh, some kind of uh, basic ecosystem conservation regime. Uh, the, the guy who was going to lead the delegation for the Department of State said, uh, well, if you can draft something, we'll table it. And the people representing the National Marine Fisheries Service at that time said, well, that'll be non-negotiable. Uh, the other countries won't accept that. Twist came back from that meeting uh, and said to me and the general counsel, and then he called up the commissioners and the committee of scientific advisors. And I think in, in something like a long weekend, we put together uh, a, a draft agreement that uh, had, well, had two things, and I need to go back again. Actually, not very far, though. In 
1974 and 1975, uh, the President's Council on Environmental Quality, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, IUCN, and I think a couple of other groups, had supported a series of workshops and consultations uh, concerning uh, wildlife management. The product of that was uh, published in a wildlife monograph. The two authors uh, were Lee Talbot and Sidney Holt. Uh, and Lee at that time was uh, involved with CEQ, but that publication basically said that MSY is an outdated management concept. And then it listed a, a, a series of, of things that should be incorporated into uh, wildlife management. So when we developed uh, the, the draft regime that the U.S. eventually tabled, it was patterned after what was in uh, the, the Holt-Talbot monograph, plus the, con the OSP concept uh, in the Marine Mammal Protection Act. When Twist came back from the meeting where it was accepted uh, that the U.S. would table the draft that the commission had developed, he said to me, you're going to that meeting. And on something like three or four days advance notice, I ended up, uh, and then over the course of the next uh, over 20 years, ended up being a, a, an advisor to the Department of State on uh, Antarctic uh, matters. So I was involved then with that uh, first and, and most of the other subsequent meetings that led to the development of the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, and then the minerals regime, uh, and then the protocol to the Antarctic Treaty on Environmental Protection. And I was the, then the first U.S. representative uh, to the scientific committee established by the Living Resources Convention, CAMLR, C-C-A-M-L-R, and then also was the, the first U.S. representative to the Committee on Environmental Protection that was established by uh, the Environmental Protocol. It's, uh, and, and again, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, at the beginning of the first, uh, what was a special Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting, there ended up then being four sessions of it at which Camelar was negotiated, uh, Dick Laws, who at that time was the director of the British Antarctic Survey uh, and had been involved in, in those, uh, the biomass meetings in Woods Hole, was asked to make a presentation uh, talking about uh, the living resources of the Antarctic and uh, Two important things came out of that that were related then to the Commission's proposal in terms of an ecosystem-oriented regime. One of the things that Dick pointed out is uh, the Antarctic Treaty applies uh, to the land and ice shelves south of 60 degrees south latitude, uh, 
but the Antarctic marine ecosystem, uh, the, the physical or biological boundary is really the Antarctic convergence, which in, in many areas is much further north than 60 degree north. So if, if you look at Camelar, uh, the, uh, the fisheries regime, there are two important things in that regard. One is it applies to all living things south of the Antarctic Convergence. So the, or the, uh, the living resources regime extends beyond the Antarctic Treaty area uh, to the Antarctic Convergence, and it applies to all, all resources, and then it has in it the kind of uh, ecosystem approach that's reflected in the Holt Talbot or monograph and uh, has been uh, one of the things that the Marine Mammal Commission uh, has advocated and advocated uh, leading to that first round of negotiations. I suspect uh, anyone much younger than me uh, will have uh, no knowledge of what the world was like in the 60s and 70s and particularly as it relates to uh, environmental conservation. As, as I've already noted, uh, that series of consultations and workshops in 74 and 75 sponsored by CEQ, the Smithsonian, IUCN, and there are a couple of others. Uh, there was recognition that MSY management uh, didn't work. So what should work? And in that same context, uh, uh, you know, uh, Rachel Carson's work uh, and uh, the first Earth Day. And in the late 60s and early 70s, there was the growing awareness uh, that what people were doing to the planet uh, might be destroying not only the planet, uh, but the human species. In the United States, beginning in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, much of, much of it under uh, President Nixon and a Republic, Republican regime developed a series of environmental laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, uh, the Fisheries Conservation and Management Act were all a product of that growing recognition. In terms of the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, there were really three driving forces. The first one was the, the, the tuna persane fishery in the eastern tropical Pacific, where there were, and if you've already talked to Bill Perrin, uh, you know more about this than I'll be able to tell you. There were hundreds of thousands of porpoise being killed, or dolphins, uh, being killed every year in that fishery. Uh, and that was of great concern uh, to the scientific community, to the general public, uh, to the Congress, and this is sometimes missed, to many of the fishermen themselves. Uh, 
The second issue was the failure of the International Whaling Commission to prevent the overexploitation of virtually all of the large whales. So uh, in the 60s, well, uh, whaling, uh, you know, resumed after the Second World War and it was like the original uh, whaling. Uh, they eventually found whales wherever they existed and they harvested them and the regulation was bad and there was a lot of lying about what was actually being taken. That was one of the things that uh, 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 came out after the fall of the Soviet Union in 89. And I suspect one of the people that's probably on your list to talk to is Bob Brownell. And he's a great person to ask about that. And Bill Perrin may have raised some of this as well. Uh, so the second issue was the failure of the International Whaling Commission to effectively prevent the overexploitation and near, well, certainly economic extinction of one species of whale after the other. And the third issue was, uh, was the uh, killing of baby harp seals uh, for the fur industry. It's when, when Congress uh, looked at those issues and it looked at, at, at what the responsible regulatory ages, agencies had done, it concluded that it needs, needed some kind of independent ombudsman, and that was the Marine Mammal Commission. Uh, so the act established both the Marine Mammal Commission and the Committee of Scientific Advisors on Marine Mammals, and they, they are established largely independently but they effectively constitute a body. Two interesting things in that regard. The Marine Mammal Commission was given no regulatory authority, none. But if the commission made a recommendation to another agency, let's say to the National Marine Fisheries Service, the State Department, the Bureau of Land Management, that agency was required by the statute to respond in writing within 120 days in terms of how it responded to that recommendation. And if it didn't uh, accept the recommendation, it was required to indicate in writing why. And then the commission was responsible for advising Congress of a recommendation that it made and if it wasn't followed, why it wasn't followed. Now. Uh, second interesting thing, it's uh, with respect to the Committee of Scientific Advisors, if the Committee of Scientific Advisors made a recommendation to the Commission and the Commission didn't accept it, the Commission was required then to advise the agency who the recommendation would have applied to and the Congress that it didn't and why. Now interesting, that has never happened. <laughs> I, to the best of my knowledge, there's never been a single case where the, where the Committee of Scientific Advisors had made a recommendation to the Commission that the Commission didn't adopt. Now, in some cases, there may have been an extended dialogue, uh, uh, you know, what, why, how, uh, all of that stuff. But to the best of my knowledge, and certainly during my 25 years as Scientific Program Director, there was never a situation where uh, the commission didn't accept a recommendation 
from the Committee of Scientific Advisors. Now, uh, two other things of particular relevance or interest in that regard. The Act says uh, that the commissioners uh, shall be expert uh, in marine affairs uh, and be appointed by the president from a list of qualified individuals put together by the chairman of CEQ with the concurrence of the directors of the National Science Foundation, the Smithsonian Institution, and one other, which I'm not remembering right now. It'll come to me. Uh, in 1981, uh, in the first Reagan administration, there was an, an effort uh, to appoint a couple of commissioners that didn't have the qualifications. Uh, the Senate and Congress looked at that and they amended the Marine Mammal Protection Act to require Senate confirmation of, of the commissioners. So now the commissioners have to go through this, the same confirmation process as uh, somebody being appointed to the Supreme Court or uh, a head of any of the agencies. The Committee of Scientific Advisors, uh, by statute, have to have expertise in marine mammals and marine mammal affairs. And again, uh, they're appointed by the chairman of the commission with the concurrence of the other two commissioners. But again, from a, uh, from a list of qualified individuals put together by CEQ uh, with the concurrence of the Smithsonian, uh, the National Science Foundation, and again, it's it, uh, I, I'm not remembering what the third. The early on the the commissioners. Well, maybe we should begin early on. The Office of Presidential Personnel made a very very important uh, decision, and that decision is is the first chairman of the commission should be Dr. Schiffer. Uh, who you've already interviewed and you know a lot about him. He was retired at that time and had worked uh, uh, for, it would have been the old Bureau of Sport and Commercial Fisheries uh, under the Department of the Interior and now uh, would be NOAA. And uh, he would have been the director of what eventually became the National Marine Mammal Lab, part of the National Marine Fisheries Service in Seattle. He himself made, uh, with the other two commissioners, a very, very important uh, determination and judgment, and that is he hired John Twiss to be the first uh, executive director of the commission. Uh, John, at that time, uh, was working for the Office of Polar Pro or the Office of Antarctic Programs. It's now the Office of Polar Programs at the National Science Foundation. When John interviewed me, he said he took the job for one reason. And he said, under the Marine Mammal Protect Act, Protection Act, the decision-making body is required by statute to take advice from the scientific community. Uh, and that's what attracted him to the Marine Mammal Commission. And my earlier comment about not being aware of any situation where the commission didn't uh, uh, 
abide by a recommendation of the commission has largely to do with uh, with John Twist. It's there was never, to my knowledge, any decision that the commissioners ever made that didn't involve consultation with the Committee of Scientific Advisors. It's one of the things John, uh, I used to uh, kid him that he had a telephone growing out of his ear. Uh, he would spend uh, large parts of most days, including weekends, on the telephone talking to the committee members and the commissioners, making sure that they were aware of the issues uh, that were under consideration and that there was, in fact, a consensus uh, that was developed. So in, largely because, and, and then if, if you look at that first group of people who were appointed uh, to the Committee of Scientific Advisors, and even uh, now, it's a virtual who's who of marine mammal scientists in the United States. Uh, there's another important point related to that. And if you look ag again at the first committee of scientific, scientific advisors, what Dr. Sheffer and the other two commissioners must have done, and uh, I don't know whether John Twist was aboard yet, uh, but I'm sure what they did is they said, okay, what issues are we going to have uh, to address and who are the best experts on those various issues? So if you look at the, the original Committee of Scientific Advisors, there's people with expertise in large whales and whaling. There's people with expertise on the tuna dolphin problem. There are people with, uh, with expertise uh, on seals. And there has always been uh, a veterinarian, so the issue of, of marine mammal health, uh, uh, there's always been uh, someone, uh, some veterinarian always on the Committee of Scientific Advisors. And as, as things have changed, they've shifted a little bit. The other thing is, is there's geographic distribution. So uh, there are and always have been uh, scientists from Alaska, from California, from, the, uh, from Florida or the Gulf states, uh, from the East Coast. Everywhere that there are marine mammals, there's always somebody on the Committee of Scientific Advisors from that geographic area and with, with unique expertise in some area that the Commission is going to have to deal with. Both the committee members and the commissioners are hypothetically appointed for a three-year term. Uh, and it's uh, similar, the similar concept to with senators. You know, uh, if, if you go back and you look at the Constitution, senators are elected for a six-year period. Uh, uh, the first one's for two-year term, a four-year term, and a six-year term. So uh, that every two years you're getting a third new senators. What the idea was with the Marine Mammal Commissioners is every, three, uh, every year you would get a new one. So every three years uh, there would be a completely new commission. That has never happened, uh, in part because uh, they have to be appointed by uh, the president. And if, if you look at uh, the Office of Presidential Personnel uh, with judges and uh, uh, everything else, 
the Marine Mammal Commission is about as low on their agenda as they can possibly be. So uh, some of the commissioners have, uh, have been on the uh, commission or committee of scientific advisors for long periods of time. The president chairman, uh, Dr. Reynolds, goes back, uh, you know, I was still working here in, in the 1990s when he was, I think he was, like many of them, first appointed to the scientific committee and then to the commission. And I think that's probably true for the other two commissioners now as well, Dr. Dayton and, and Dr. Alexander. And, and then, uh, by the same token, the committee members, it was expected uh, that there would be three appointed uh, every year. So every three years, there would be a rotation. And again, that has never happened. Uh, but there's uh, generally more movement uh, off of the Committee of Scientific Advisors because the issue, they are appointed by the chairman of the commission with the consent of the other two commissioners, again, from a list of qualified individuals. Uh, but the reason they move is, is the issues will move a little bit more frequently. Uh, so at one time, you know, where uh, you're at the question about Dr. Jurassi, uh, he was on the Committee of Scientific Advisors uh, during the dolphin die-off in 88 and 89 and uh, was asked by the commission uh, to lead that investigation. And, uh, oh, uh, Dr. Ridgway was one of the early veterinarians. Uh, it's, I suspect, most of the people that you'll end up uh, interviewing at one time or the other have been either on the commission or the Committee of Scientific Advisors. If you would like to watch Dr. Hoffman's complete interview or other scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top. <laughs>